0: Matthew chapter 5, our text this morning is going to be verses 21 to 26, but right now I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter and and read through to our text this morning. And all throughout our our goal, the question this morning is going to be, how can I be a kingdom follower by seeking to be angry but not sinning? That's going to be kind of our, our overarching question we'll keep in mind, but Read with me, read along with me in in Matthew chapter 5. Follow along. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let me pray for us. Well, thank you, Heavenly Father, just for your grace Lord, to come over this time now, Holy Spirit, touch touch the words of this teaching, Lord, that I may speak not as the scribes and the Pharisees do, but that I may speak with one who has authority, not my own authority, Lord, but authority in you, who have authority over all things on heaven and earth, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, just for touching our hearts and our eyes, just to be opened to your word now, Lord, just to give, to have understanding, Lord, I, just, I pray that you would just bless this time, Father. Lord, let us just worship you through this time now. In your name, amen. So, in this series, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And our goal is to see how, from this teaching, that we are to live as kingdom people, as followers of Jesus. Okay, and therefore, this talk is geared to, towards two different types of people. The first type of people is those of you who claim the name of Christ already. Okay? You, are, you who are already a part of the kingdom, those of you who have already tasted the goodness of Christ and have submitted to his lordship over your lives. If that is you this morning, then this talk is most certainly for you. Okay? But the second group of people whom this talk is geared toward is those of you who have not yet tasted the goodness of Christ, and who have not yet submitted to his lordship over your life, those of you who have not yet trusted in who Christ is and and what he has done, this talk is most certainly for you also. And I do hope and I pray that you will encounter Christ by your time here this morning, that you will encounter Jesus as being real and alive, and that you will find him to be worth following by your time here with us this morning. But for both groups of people, our goal is to understand how from Jesus, how we can be his followers and how we can be people of his kingdom. So, our text this morning, Matthew 5 21 to 26, contains, I believe, some of, some of the hardest teachings of Jesus to swallow. There's a phrase that's been sometimes applied to Jesus saying that with his words, he both comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. And I think that that's probably true. That's probably true for his audience then. And I think it's Most definitely true for us today. Uh, With many of Jesus' teachings, we want to keep the nice, cozy ones, but throw out the ones that are difficult. But out of everything that Jesus teaches on, anger is something that so easily wells up in so many of us that sometimes (laughs) with seemingly little or no warning. So when we get to Jesus' words teaching about anger... We, we sometimes think or feel that Jesus is just getting too extreme for his own good. But, though difficult, I believe these words this morning and the ones that we'll be following in the next few weeks are some of the richest and some of the most important things that we could have from Jesus. So coming off of our teaching last week, we learned that Jesus' goal in being on earth and his, his goal in teaching was not to do away with or overturn any of the teachings of the law that had previously been established, because he said, we we studied this last week, he said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Therefore, when we get to the text for today and the text for the next few weeks, we would do well to keep in mind that truth, the truth that Jesus is here to fulfill these laws, not to do away with them. So, our question, like I mentioned earlier, is, How are we to be followers of Jesus who live like Jesus? There are two main ways that that I've broken this up, which I I will seek to show you how we are to be followers of Jesus who live like Jesus. So here's the outline. Point number one is going to be, in order to be people who follow and live like Jesus, we must be angry, yet not sin. Point number two, in order to be people who follow and live like Jesus, We must pursue reconciliation. There's two ways that I've broken that up who we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, But before diving in any further, I want to give a little context on where we are and where we'll be going for the next few weeks. So here in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21 and then continuing on to verse 48, we see where Matthew is now recording where Jesus gives six interpretations of the Old Testament law. So starting here, As we continue on with the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus giving six times where he uses the phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old, and he gives the phrase, and he turns it around and says, but I say to you, and he gives what he's going to say. And six times we see Jesus taking the Old Testament law, that which anyone who has desired to be righteous, up until this point in history, we see him taking that, And not doing away with it, but instead stepping it up and taking it higher to a new level. So starting in verse 21, where we find our text for this morning, we see Jesus begins to interpret the law about the sin of murderous anger. And then in verse 27, he addresses adulterous lust with the same phrase, You have heard that it was said before, but I say to you this, And then, in verse 31, he discusses divorce. In 33, he takes swearing and oaths. 38, he addresses lashing out and retaliation against another. And finally, he, he turns the table on everyone by saying that they should not hate their enemies, but they should love their enemies. And he introduces each of these topics by saying the phrase, You have heard that it was said this way, but I say to you that it's actually much more than you thought. And according to scholars, just a little bit of history on that phrase, this type of phrase wasn't something, wasn't an uncommon uh, term for the day for Jewish scholars and teachers of the time. When they would use wording like this, it wasn't as if they were trying to counter the law, but instead they were, they were more so offering a different or more fully understood interpretation of, of what the Old Testament law was. However... When we get to Jesus using these words and using this phrase, we're not just getting a more fully understood thing from another scholar or another rabbi. Instead, we're getting the words straight from God, showing us what is the true fulfilled meaning of His law. Therefore, from Jesus' words that we're about to study, the law that has always said, you shall not murder, has in God's eyes, I believe, always meant not only outward physical action, but also inward heartfelt emotion. So point number one, getting into it. In order to be people who follow and live like Jesus, we must be angry, yet sin not. So Matthew 5, 21 and 22 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not Murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So right here from the beginning, we see God's heart on display in Jesus' words affirming the Old Testament commandment found in Exodus 20:13, that murder is wrong. But also we see Jesus Affirming that God's heart is also against us having anger in our hearts. Psalm thirty-seven eight says, "Refrain from anger and turn away from wrath." Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four says, "Make no friendship with a man given to anger." And Ecclesiastes seven nine says, "Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools." So when we read Jesus words equating anger to murder we can again see God's heart being revealed. And we see that just in that simple yet yet history altering statement that God is not or that God is just as concerned as the inward heart of his people than he is of the outward actions that they commit. And going further though we understand that insulting someone with our words saying something like, you idiot, or, or you're just so dumb, or you just aren't smart enough, or, 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 just, or you're you so slow, insulting their character. The word in your Bible might be raka, which essentially means dumb or empty-headed, a nothing, a, a total insult of their character. We see here that saying something like that is worthy of being judged by the highest court, Then we see that calling your brother or sister a fool is bad enough that it brings the judgment of hell. So we get a pretty clear picture here of where Jesus is going with this. He takes the Old Testament law and he ramps it up, saying, you've heard that murder is guilty of punishment. I tell you that angry is the same. Being angry is guilty of the same thing. Being angry against your brother, insulting his character, calling him an evil person... In the eyes of God, it's all equal to an actual physical act of murdering him. Whether or not you ever commit the action, if you feel the inward emotion toward that person, then it makes you guilty of the same charge. But when we hear those words, what then do we make of all this that Jesus has just said about how wrong being angry is when we look at the character of God all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the storyline of Scripture, when we look at God's character throughout Scripture, we see that He would often speak of His own anger, a fierce and consuming anger that would be carried out on all those who disregard His ways. And if we make a really brief survey across the Old Testament and just pick out certain places, not necessarily paying attention to context, but staying true to the general meaning, if we pick out those places, just listen to what we find time after time where God is speaking of himself. He says, My wrath will burn. Next is 22 24. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. That was God speaking to the people of Jerusalem when they had turned away from him in Ezekiel 5.13. But then looking further in Micah 5, verse 15, we see God saying, And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. And in backing up, looking all across the Psalms, we see God's anger and wrath spoken, over, spoken that by over and over, prayers of David pleading with the Lord not to destroy him in His anger. Psalm 38:1 says, "O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath." So we see spread across all of the Old Testament warnings and displays of God's anger and wrath and fury. Unless we think that God somehow changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Unless we think that Jesus is somehow contradicting himself, because we must not lose sight of who Jesus is, right? Namely, God in flesh, God here. Unless we think that he's contradicting himself, listen to what Jesus' response is to things that offend him and what he believes in. In Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And elsewhere in Matthew 23, Jesus repeatedly calls religious leaders broods of vipers and blind fools. These are certainly not words intended to lift their spirits or to build them up. So we must... Then, in light of all these times where we see that God is angry throughout the Old Testament, and then when we see these places in the New Testament where Jesus is clearly displaying an attitude of angry disgust for certain things or people, we must seek to understand how we can reconcile our understanding of of God being one who shows anger, but also being one who says that having anger in your heart is wrong. And all of this should then leave a question in your mind. If having anger in your heart is sin, but God has often warned of his own anger and displayed it at times throughout history, how can this be? Does God then sin? Absolutely not. Does God create a loophole so that there's something, a double standard to where he can do this, but we can't? I know Means, Church, if that were the case, then he would not be completely holy and perfect. And if he was not completely holy and perfect, then we would have no reason to worship and honor him. But that is not the case. Rather, following along with what Paul says in Ephesians 4, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he says, Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here we see that there is a way to express this terrible emotion that comes up and just wells up inside of us. And yes, there must be if our God does it, right? But what I want us to see here is that being angry must actually be an appropriate response when there is an appropriate offense. So if God is a God who can be angry, and we've certainly seen that in Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who we are seeking to be like in everything we do, in every way, we see that he becomes angry when when provoked by an appropriate offense. We would do right then to also be provoked when we are provoked by an appropriate offense, yet without sinning now, if you're tracking with me again, which I hope you are here, then the question that should be rising up in your mind is that if being angry with my brother is wrong, and it most certainly is, and, but if there is something out there to which I should actually be angry against, and there's, that's actually an appropriate response to something, what then is it that I should be angry against? That's the question I hope you have right now. And this is the one thing to which I encourage you this morning to be angry against. The one thing that God is angry against. The one thing that you should hate. In order to be angry and sin not, as our Savior was, is, you must learn to despise and be angry against the sin that so easily entangles your life. Whatever that sin is, whether it's your mouth where you're, you're calling your brother or sister something like an idiot, a fool, or whether it's the resentment that you have for someone or perhaps jealousy, that lust, that idleness, bitterness, rage, you fill in the blank with, with your sin that's entangled your life. Do you see yourself in light of these verses? Do you see that when you are angry with someone, if you have called them a fool, if you've harbored bitterness for them in your heart, then you are guilty before God for the same punishment than if you had, that you would receive if you had physically murdered them. But when the anger does come up against your brother, and it will when it starts rising up like a flash flood tsunami is about to crash over someone, remember the most amazing display of God's anger that changed all of history. When he consumed the sins of the world on himself by dying on the cross, when he took away the need to be angry against your brother, remember that and allow that to govern your unrighteous anger and allow your unrighteous anger to be consumed by his most righteous and perfect display of anger for all time. He finished it. So, if you want to follow the example of our Lord and be a follower of Jesus who lives like him, brother and sister, friend, be angry against your sins by dying to yourself, nailing them to the cross and striving to sin no more. So that's point number one. Point number two, in order to be people who follow and live like Jesus, we must pursue reconciliation by not leaving murder in someone else's heart. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So here we have a change. We're now, instead of talking about your own anger that you have against your brother, Jesus flips the scenario over to talking about your brother's anger that he has against you and your response to it. So look at me with Genesis 4, verses 3 through 8. 8. Look at me there in Genesis 4, verse 3. It says In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So here we have a situation but these two brothers have come to, alt- to offer their gift at the altar, to bring their gift to the Lord. We have two different brothers, two different gifts, but with so much more importantly, I believe, two different heart attitudes. And I think that we shouldn't, I believe, get distracted by, by what the actual nature of the gift was here. But instead, thankfully, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews tells us why Abel's gift was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Rather than the nature of the gift that they were offering, it was the nature of their hearts when approaching God. Abel's gift was accepted because of faith leading to a right heart attitude. But First John 3.12 tells us that Cain murdered his brother because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain's gift at the altar was rejected because of his evil heart. Not approaching God by faith, but instead with anger in his heart. What resulted then was that Cain's internal anger soon after led to external murder. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, if we are here at the altar offering our worship and we realize that there's anger in our hearts, or possibly more importantly because it's what Jesus focuses on, that we have left anger in someone else's heart. Let us not be like Cain, who, when he was offering his gift to the Lord, already had bitterness in his heart against his brother. And when we read that Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar, first go and be reconciled, we would do well to understand that, left unchecked, our anger or bitterness, like with Cain, will lead to murder. The importance of this is huge here. Jesus is picturing someone who comes to the temple to offer their gifts, their gifts of worship. It's, It's a real and it's a special moment. And then Jesus builds up this almost unbelievable scenario where he talks about people traveling all the way to the temple to offer their gift. So they have to come all the way to Jerusalem to to offer their gift here at the altar, come from all surrounding areas, travel far and wide to get here. And in that moment, when they're about to offer their gift, they remember that their brother has something against them. And they leave. They stop. They leave their gift there. And they go to be reconciled with their brother. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. So for us... That might look like this. Let's say we have to go to California to go to church to offer our gift of worship. We have to travel all the way, whichever way west is, we have to travel all the way there just to offer our gift of worship. So we spend a lot of time and energy to get there. We get there, we're about to go into the service, we're taking our seat, and then we remember that our brother or sister here at home has something against us, what Jesus is calling us to do then would be to stop, leave your gift there, travel back to be reconciled with your brother. So he puts a, This is what Jesus is saying. The anger left in our heart or in the heart of someone who has something against us makes us guilty before the judgment of God. And allowing anger to rest in our heart or the heart of someone who has something against us is as if there is murder in our heart or the murder in the heart of those whom we have offended. What this means then is that whether someone has offended us or whether we have offended them intentionally or not intentionally, perhaps we were even in the right but they were still offended. This means that in order for our gift of worship to be accepted by God, we must pursue reconciliation. If we look to Jesus' words in just a few chapters, we get a much even clearer understanding of God's heart here. Jesus says in Matthew 9.13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So rather than offering our gift at the altar, mercy here in this case means that whether or not the person's complaint is justified, whether or not you think you did anything, if you know that this person has something against you, you must seek to reconcile your relationship before offering any more gifts of worship. And this means that, at least in the very least, the quality of our relationship with God Depends on the quality of our relationship with our brother or sister. In fact, 1 John 4.20 says it this way: if you do not love your brother whom you have seen, you cannot love God whom you have not seen. In order for our gift to be accepted at the altar before God, we must, church, we must pursue reconciliation with our brother or sister. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now I recognize that it's just not possible to be at peace with every single person who might possibly have something against you. And if I think of someone, say, who's in a highly public position, who makes statements and stands for sensitive issues in public settings, there will be people offended that he will never even know, much less know that they have something against him. Or you may go to your brother and sister or sister and apologize, but not actually be able to change anything, not actually be able to alter the situation at all. But when you are offering your gift at the altar and there realize that your brother or sister has something against you, As much as it depends on you, seek peace and reconciliation with that person, that the peace of Christ may richly dwell with you both. So in order to be someone who follows and lives like Jesus, we must pursue reconciliation by not allowing murder to rest in someone else's heart. That's 2A, 2B. In order to be people who live, who follow and live like Jesus, we must Pursue reconciliation by being quick to love even our enemies. Verses 25 and 26 say, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." So now, Jesus makes yet another shift. What we have been talking about, if your brother has something against you, here he goes in a totally different league. Jesus steps it up to saying, not only if your brother has something against you, you should be reconciled to him, but if someone who is acting as your enemy has something against you, you should seek to be reconciled to him. But, not only is Jesus saying that you should try your hardest to be reconciled to this person. He seems to be saying that you should seek to do so as quickly as possible. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. Jesus is saying, don't wait until peace has to be made by someone else who's not even involved. No, you be the one to go and seek peace between the two of you. You pursue making amends before it even gets to court. As much as you are able, make things right as soon as you are able. Though you all know, as I do, what our natural response is when we've been offended or when we feel wronged in some way or if someone is accusing us for something, we like to put up our defenses. We like to see where we can punch back. We like to see if we can find problems with the other person who's accusing us. Or we start start building up walls of bitterness against this person, trying our best to ignore them. And maybe pretending that they're, they're even dead to us. We start doing everything we can to battle our pride, to battle so that our pride doesn't have to allow us to admit that we are wrong. But, dear friends, This matter, battling back against someone who has accused us or wronged us or done any matter of evil against us, either rightly or falsely, for our Lord's name's sake, blessed are we who turn the other cheek to them also. Blessed are we who meekly pursue forgiveness. Blessed are we who are peacemakers for we shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are we who are merciful, for we shall receive mercy. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? My dear friends, we are to pursue reconciliation with those who have accused us or wronged us because there is nothing more Christ-like Nothing greater to do than to lay down the life of our pride in order to love that person as Jesus loves them. Romans 13.8 says, O no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. And who is your neighbor? Anyone to whom mercy can be shown, Jesus says in Luke 10. So, in order to live as people who follow and live like Jesus, we must be angry against our sin, yet without sinning. and We must pursue reconciliation by not allowing murder to rest in the hearts of others. And in order to follow and live like Jesus, we must pursue reconciliation by quickly loving our enemies, even if it costs us everything. This week, in my preparation for this talk, the Lord greatly used this passage to convict me of my own bitterness and the place in my life where I had unresolved anger that I allowed it to take a foothold in my life. But thanks be to God that He is a God who has mercy on the unmerciful and He has grace on the unloving. And so, my prayer for you, each one of you this morning, is that if you have anger towards your brother or sister, that you would run to the cross with that. That if you have something against your brother or sister, that you wouldn't even take another step out of this service without working it out between you and God, and if possible, with that other person. My prayer is that while you've been offering your gift of worship here at the altar this morning, if you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, my prayer for you would be that you would seek to go quickly out of here to be reconciled with that person. As much as it depends on you, as much as it's in your power, as far as you can take it, to reconcile your relationship with this person, seek to do so. Not that your relationship necessarily need be restored to the same as it was before. I recognize that there may be some really deep hurts. There may be some very difficult situations with hurt emotions. But as much as it depends on you, church, seek peace and pursue mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these hard words that you've given us. Jesus, for these words that you've spoken to us, Lord, that show us where, where we have fought, and, but show us that in you we have mercy, and that in you on the cross, when we lay that on the cross and cast it on you, God, we have forgiveness. God, so that we can extend forgiveness to our brother and sister. I thank you for that, Jesus. I worship you for this good, good news, Lord, this joy-giving news of your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would just lock these things into our hearts, Lord, that we would seek to pursue forgiveness, that we would seek to live justly with mercy, Lord, all the days of our life as we go out of here, God. And that if, someone, if we know that someone has something against us, Lord, that we would not let that go without doing our part to reconcile that with our brother and sister. Jesus, I thank you for this. I thank you for, for your good words, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, stand with me, and then we're going to close out with this. Um, then we'll have an announcement, but stand with me as we end this part of the talk. First John 4 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the Savior for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.